Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise from today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. At Content Allies, we turn you and your organization into industry thought leaders. We interview you and your leadership team and then turn those interviews into articles, white papers, videos, podcasts, and social content. Learn more and say hello at contentallies.com. So everyone, welcome to the show today. Super excited today to have Michael Jansen of City Zenith on the show. And uh, welcome to the show today, Michael. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you on here. Really fascinated by the the work and everything you guys are doing. Um, and so, for a quick introduction, um, could you maybe share with everyone just um, what is City Zenith, this company that you've uh, built, and just kind of give us maybe the the sixty second overview? Sure. I mean, City Zenith is a software company based in Chicago, and we have offices in London and New Delhi. We are focusing uh, on an area of technology called digital twins, which I'll talk a little bit about today, and. We specifically provide digital twins to the buildings and infrastructure sector, which kind of explains a bit about um, what the product ends up looking like. If you've ever seen SimCity or 3D Google Earth or Minecraft tools like this, this is kind of a professional version of those tools for real architects, planners, and people from the building industry. Um, Digital twins themselves are virtual replicas of of physical buildings and infrastructure uh, attached to the the data in and around them. And we specialize in providing this technology largely to uh, large-scale customers who are building big projects. Uh, What they do uniquely well is is make sense out of a lot of chaos of, of information. Big projects have dozens and dozens of tools, dozens and dozens of data formats, making them more efficient becomes a challenge until you could actually bring them together in a common platform, which is what digital twinning generally does. Our focus then is on real estate, uh, infrastructure, even do entire cities. We've done uh, more recently announced a project with the Orlando Magic uh, at the Orlando Sports Entertainment District, which is in the west part of Orlando, where they're building a digital twin to optimize the visitor experience there. And we're also working on a new multi-smart city project in New Mexico, where they're using digital twins to plan a zero carbon strategy, be the first ever renewably powered cities in the world, I believe. So uh, very interesting, kind of like breadth of projects, all focused on how we can help uh, the building industry tackle uh, you know, some of the challenges it has today. And it's been an exciting ride. The last couple of years, we've seen the market really begin to take off. It's planned to become really big over the next five years. I think it's going to grow at like 50% a year for five years, which is pretty amazing. And we're happy to be considered to be an emerging, you know, early leader in this space. We have a long way to go, but we have got a great start. Incredible. And so if I understand kind of what you guys do to kind of reiterate that, so essentially um, you would take maybe like a building or an area and you would replicate it in your software and then you're able to you know, look at also the infrastructure, the, the water systems, the power systems, and you're able to then say, kind of simulate, okay, well, what happens if we were to like try to put solar roofing on all of these, or we were to try to uh, adjust the infrastructure or try to do something new 
And then you can start to see how does that impact, you know, power systems, you know, traffic flow. It, it almost lets you kind of plan a whole project with like new variables or test things out digitally. Is that, is that a correct summary? That's exactly right. You could begin to scenarioize things like how much solar glass would be needed to power that section of the city. You can make run calculations like that. You can run simulations that uh, determine the the impact of a new, say, neighborhood planning design on on street temperature. Uh, if you're kind of looking at climate change impact issues, um, the tool is also used to uh, determine pedestrian flow patterns, traffic flow patterns. So really. It's a big farm for all kinds of complex data. The uniqueness of what these tools do now is being able to, to integrate multiple traditionally disparate forms of data, like everything from an IoT sensor to a you know, GIS file to a, you know, a 3D CAD file from an architect, and to pull that data and make it available for these types of analytics. That's the power of it. So ultimately, what we're building is a full-on city operating system. You know, by the time it's fully mature, you'll be able to run a city on this. And at the moment, we're you're running large projects on this. We're running entire you know uh, new developments, entire sections of of cities, uh, infrastructure projects. One of our projects was the East West Rail project in the UK, where we uh, twinned a 103 kilometer high speed bullet train line from Oxford to Cambridge, which was incredible because the amount of data we were able to collect into that twin was unprecedented. I mean, the designers had an incredible trove of data from which to work from. And whenever they made a change in the engineering office, it was updated in the twins. So it was a constant updated model for everyone to be able to use. And it really changed the dynamics of that, of that project. So this trend is going to continue for years to come. Um, we're now seeing more and more RFPs uh, from uh, major cities, from, from manufacturing companies, from real estate companies for this type of technology. So it's really interesting. It's kind of a Bit the wild west right now, but a lot of new experimentation. And I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see some really interesting work get done. And so I'm very interested. Um, so if I understand correctly, you guys have a software solution, but I imagine something this complex, it's also like a large consulting engagement um, at the same time. And so um, I mean, yeah, I'm just curious, like, how does that aspect of your like business model work? Like how much of it is, are you ever just selling the software to people or is it always kind of like a more of like a software consulting implementation or, or what does that kind of look like in terms of your business? Well, there is a, um, we've, we've automated the software as much as possible to make it as out of the box as a product like this can come. And during implementation, we provide professional services enough to get the client to where they need to be, but they can then run it on their own, on their own after that. They're not require our professional services perpetually. That was a very important thing for us because we believe it doesn't really scale. Uh, mm -hmm. We think that the, what our clients are looking for is just give us the tech, set it up, tell us how to use it and walk away. Um, they prefer that to give us some tech and then make us reliant on you perpetually. So the um, there is at this stage and probably for the foreseeable future an element of customization that will be required. What we do is that we customize it for major partners. So for example, the energy services company will now take this customization of our product and deploy it across multiple projects. So what we do is rather than customizing by project, really customizing by provider, and then they deliver it across multiple projects. That's the model for scaling. So once we have XYZ number of partners, you know, you can kind of see how the thing scales. Um, right now we're in the, in the process of working with those early partners who range from, as you've heard, these energy services companies, big real estate folks to even the US Army. 
So we've got a lot of powerful partners right now who are working with us to get this technology to another level. And we see them as being partners for the future. That's incredible. And so I'm yeah, curious to maybe how much of your kind of growth strategy is built around standard marketing, RFPs, finding opportunities like that, and say these um, larger partnerships that almost, I guess, become new kind of distribution channels for you. Much of it is around the partnerships and the distribution channels. We do respond to RFPs directly if we like the job and we think there's a reasonable chance of getting it. We think that's a big risk in traditional government RFPs, uh, but some are you know, customized for what we do and sometimes we will. Uh, our preference is to, though, uh, work with partners uh, because the digital twin element usually is one piece of an overall deliverable uh, that may be something larger than that, of which uh, or for which the digital twin is required to, de to deliver a certain outcome. So it wouldn't be uncommon for us to be with partners in this. Um, I don't really want to go down that route. I think for us, that's just icing on the cake. Uh, the cake is working with these partners to distribute through their channels globally as they as they uh, sort of internalize digital twinning into their deliverable. We want to be an essential part of that. That's fascinating. And so I, I, it's super amazing to hear everything you've built. And I'm also just curious to understand a bit more about um, your backstory and how you got into this point where you are building this. Like, how, how did City Zenith come about? Like, what was the story? What were you doing before this? I saw you were doing work in India as well. And so... Maybe yeah, just understanding a bit more of your backstory. How did how did you come to, to start this company? Uh, yeah, this has been a long, slow, steady progression since 1989. All right. Um, I, I turned 50 last year. I'm coming up on 51 this year. A uh, As a young architect at Yale and later on at Cambridge in 1989, I was the only American architect studying at the University of Cambridge in, in that year. And I was in a CAD studio uh, or a studio that one of my partners um, was the only architect that had any knowledge of computers and was actually experimenting as far back then with 3D computer rendering. And I remember specifically our very first project that we uh, had critiqued uh, in like, I think it was something like February of 1990. And we all came with our colored drawings and pastels and wash color, everything else. And Matthew showed up with uh, a computer and he uh, put this picture of the site on the computer and then he overlaid his building and there were gasps in the room. You know, I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, you know? And uh, Matthew and I became close friends. Uh, I, that love of 3D continued. As I got into uh, the profession in the mid nineties, I was immediately thrown onto the technology side of things because I was one of the architects coming up in the firm and we were expected to learn CAD, which was new. And suddenly we became very proficient in these tools. And by the uh, by 1999, 2000, 2003, I was actually had become proficient enough in these tools to provide services to other companies, simply just straight up CAD services. And that side business of mine, which was designed to make a little money here and there, turned into a 500-person company backed by Sequoia Capital just four years later. Uh, we ended up, uh, I was doing this kind of back-end CAD work in roughly 2001, 2003 timeframe. And for one firm, and a partner, a business partner of mine came by and said, you know, you could do this for everybody if you just turn it into a business. I had no idea what he meant. I had never any ambition to run a company. I didn't know how to raise money. I was an architect to the core, and that was how it was going to be. This was just something I did. 
So I had to develop all those skills uh, really after the age of 30 uh, to, you know, kind of almost on the streets, as they say, there's no Harvard MBA here. There's no Stanford MBA. There's no four years at Goldman Sachs. No, there's, there's four years at John Portman and Associates. There was, uh, you know, there was, there was me working in architecture firms on that traditional path. So by the t- when that company scaled, by 2008, nine, we had 500 employees and we were using to deliver these CAD and what they call BIM. That had become a big deal between 2004, five, six. That's 3D CAD. So mm-hmm. now you take a 3D model, you can design a whole building in 3D and attach all the data to it and learn all the stuff about it. That was really cool. Like you could figure out, hmm, we can see where that duct is colliding into that beam. And now it's all in 3D. And you can just, it was amazing. It was a revelation. You can make things more efficient. And as we were growing that company and adding hundreds of people, we realized that there was something like 20, 30 tools popping up in the marketplace. And we said, how can you ever do a big project with 20 or 30 different tools? We were being hired and had to keep training people in different skill sets. And we said, there needs to be, because the world is building more bigger projects than ever before. We have to build 10,000 cities in the next 40 years. That is crazy. How are you going to do that? with you know, this type of ecosystem. It needs to be a kind of common platform that can begin to pull these things together and find all the efficiencies so this becomes possible. And that was the kind of pro, the progeneration of the idea. We uh, launched a company, you know, actually bought a company and then launched it um, uh, into this kind of new sphere. Uh, we hired the original creator of Google Earth himself. Thank you, Sequoia Capital, for your wonderful Silicon Valley connections. His name was Remy Arnaud from Paris, and he came in and helped us just totally pivoted our thinking out of the architecture world into the gaming world. He said, if you want to scale this thing, you'll never be able to do this using those types of technologies. It's going to have to be reinterpreted in a game-like environment. And so that began you know, the journey that you know, iteration after iteration, we began building this out more and more. And as we kept maturing, and the digital twin markets kept maturing, and we realized that we could play a significant role there. Um, so in the last three, four years, we were really focusing on the earliest companies that we even talk about digital twins. And it served us well because we, uh, I think we still maintain a, something of an emerging leader position in this market. And we're very happy about a number of the new projects that we've signed. One we'll be announcing soon. Um, it's expected to be upwards of $20 million in revenue just from that contract. So. The investment is very worth it. And uh, we're looking forward to taking this company to another level next year. Nice, that's, that's incredible. And it's a fascinating story. The more of these interviews I do, the more I find these CEOs who said, I never planned to be a CEO. Uh, <laughs> it just kind of, <laughs> you know, you do, it sounds like for you, you were just doing really great work, doing the stuff you were enjoyed, passionate about. And then the opportunity kind of came for you to kind of take this to another level. It seems like that was kind of the journey or the path for you. It was, and uh, it was it was always interesting, kind of having to be both. You know, the architect was kind of a right side of the brainer, and, and the business person it was kind of the left side of the brainer. And um, you know, I would say that the great businesses, you know, I, I have my own background, but I would say great businesses figure out the balance between those two things, between the beauty and the elegance of and and the importance of what they're doing, and and then the numbers. Um, and you know, for me, I, it all depends on what you want to do with your life, but. I, I believe in trying to create something of the highest quality possible while you're here. You know, while you're here and you're up and you're breathing and you're eating food and you're consuming resources and making friends and creating a family, why not give it your best, right? So 
I think uh, City of Enos is trying to do that to, to make something as special as we can. I think the architect in me who always once made that great project is still very much there, uh, wanting to make a great project out of this. So that, that kind of that kind of drives me. Um, but yeah, it, it's been an exciting journey, and I think it's going to get really interesting over the next two, three, four years. Yeah, so I'm always curious. You know, you, it sounds like this amazing evolution and success, but maybe what were some of the challenges or hard parts you hit along the way? Oh, many. I think that when you're building something complicated, uh, I'll give I'll give a uh, let me back off for a second and, and explain to your audience the very fundamental difference between my last business and this one. Mm-hmm. My last business was a services business. We could set up desks, buy computers. Uh, bring work in and little, literally begin servicing it right away. We could actually be in business in month. We had $25,000 in revenue in month one, which was crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. In year one, we had $500,000 in revenue, you know. By year two, two and a half million, year three, five million, year four, 10 million. We would call, the company was growing, all services revenue. With a platform style company, it, you get zero revenue until it works. Nobody, yep. <laughs> bu- nobody, nobody buys half an iPhone. Nobody buys three quarters of a Tesla. You need to be able to be prepared to invest in something until it's successful. And that's very difficult to do without revenue uh, in the early years. So we had to kind of create revenue when we knew that the platform wasn't really fully finished by doing pilots and things like that to generate revenue to be able to interest enough investors to continue going, even though we knew we were going to have to keep iterating for a long time. So I think the, 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 that was always a challenge. And then getting that funded, believe me, you have all kinds of problems when you're running a company. There were no shortage over the 10 years that we were here. There were months when we we're wondering how to pay salaries. You know, there are months when you're full of cash and you're planning to take over the world and all in the same year, possibly. Mm-hmm. So it's that, definitely that kind of journey. Um, and I think if you know what you're doing and you have, and you stay creative, uh, the hard times, you can kind of ride them out. You know, I think uh, 30 years of experience in business has taught me that uh, resilience is probably the greatest attribute an entrepreneur can have, um, aside from creativity and uh, determination. But resilience is a big one. Uh, and so that was a lesson for me. I think it was a great lesson for anybody in this, going into you know, the business of having a business. Um, you're always going to have those challenges. So uh, at some point, you have to develop a relationship with resilience. You have to develop a relationship with uncertainty that a lot of other people will never have to have. uh, And people will never understand around you either. Uh, You know, so what you might do is if you always form, there's a lot of groups out there of other CEOs and entrepreneurs, you know, join a couple of those groups. You meet other entrepreneurs and see what what they're doing. You know, learn from them they can be very helpful. A lot of them have gone through similar things and they have come up with answers. So uh, that's kind of how the things you can do when things get challenging. But uh, the key thing is get your head, keep your head in the game, stay focused on what you're doing, uh, you know, and eventually I hate to sound optimistic, but what we found is if you do those things, things tend to work out. Yeah. I love that. I'm also curious, just more also kind of like your kind of like maybe like mission or with this company, it seems like a lot of this is focused around, you know, the positive impact you can make with climate or things like that. And I'm curious how much, um, how much of what you're doing has been kind of driven by this, I guess, any sort of a kind of like positive social change or mission within this as well, kind of mixed in with like the building a successful company at the same time. Like, how do you kind of align those two? 
So it's really both. I mean, sometimes it's hard to align the need to make money with the, the desire to do something interesting, important, or relevant. I think early in the history of the business, we tried to really zero in on the smart city market and thinking that we could transform cities. And uh, you know, we found that cities were kind of a tough cookie when it came to actually making them clients. Uh, they really didn't have an easy way to engage private companies, even ones that they really wanted to work with. So personally, I've, I've been interested as an architect, and most architects are interested in the subject of sustainability, sustainable design, net zero design, and the carbon negativity, carbon neutrality. All, I mean, architect, this is in our blood. You know, we've been taught this stuff for years. We're, we're usually the helpless ones that can't do anything about it. We keep recommending things to and hoping that something happens. So that's been with me since I think the first time I actually actually applied for a job with an environmental design firm was 1994. Uh, so it was a while ago. Uh, in 2014, the C40 Cities Group actually gave us a letter of support to collaborate with them to develop a platform to help cities inventory and understand um, uh, their own carbon footprint. I realized that uh, one of the biggest challenges of the day, actually, I believe is climate change. I think that the, the impact it's having will be something like the world has never seen. And it's already seen it in many, many ways. Uh, you know, the degradation of the environment in multiple ways, the, uh, you know, the disappearance of entire species of animals, the, uh, the rising flood levels, the disappearing ice caps, the um, rising temperatures generally, especially around Sun Belt nations and uh, you know, the, the more uh, um, uh, kind of equatorial nations. I mean, it's frightening. You know, there'll be some nations will soon be uninhabitable. Some cities will soon be uninhabitable if this continues. And unfortunately, you know, the the addiction to the consumption model, which has been gotten us so far, uh, is also the problem, right? So you know, entire models are going to need to change. Uh, that will reward fundamentally conservation rather than consumption. And the building industry itself, if you look at any city, cities, by the way, I think produce 67% of all the world's carbon. So, okay, it's mostly cities. Inside cities, buildings produce 40 to 70% of that. So, okay, it's mostly buildings. So if the buildings can really, we can put building owners on a clear path to decarbonizing, then we're in business and we're making a big dent. So I thought, you know, we can't take on the whole problem. How ridiculous. We can maybe focus on that one area and be very, very good at it. You know, helping building owners and infrastructure operators to decarbonize. Uh, and that's all a data game. It's all about measuring what you have and applying analytics to create a path forward. Uh, it's not just about buying offsets, which is what many real estate owners think they need to do. It's actually about lowering energy consumption and, and deploying renewable strategies too. So it's both. Um, Digital Twins can help that. So we made a pledge recently to cities to donate as we raise money in this Regulation A plus public capital raise we have going. Every million dollars we raise, we're going to donate another digital twin model to another city. And that's the plan. So up to, I think, 10 models, the first 10 million that we raise. And the goal there is we think that this technology is so important um, that it's important that there be consensus around it. Uh, it's important that it works that we don't think, I mean, we, 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 we are concerned that the digital trend market could get as fragmented as the BIM and the CAD markets because companies will create all these proprietary technologies that don't work together and you know, we'll go out there and kind of pollute the market with this stuff. So we want to get ahead of that and say, here's a free version anyone can use you know, that does this one thing 
for us, it, 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 it creates awareness, helps solve the city problem. It also exposes us and our clients to our technology because the building owners in that city will now know what our tool is all about. And so we're thinking this is probably a, the best way for us to kind of achieve what we want to do, but also have it make sense, right? So, you know, we took a lot of thinking in this space to figure out where we really belong. But as far as, um, you know, we've concluded that this is really where we, we want to be. And I think where we're going to stay, you'll see a lot of projects that we do in the future have this kind of climate angle or, or, or low, lower zero carbon angle. I think it's going to become quite, quite typical for us. Nice. That's a uh, super fascinating and love just hearing how it all kind of plays almost into like the business strategy as well, but it also comes backed by this kind of mission where it's almost like the, the greater business impact you have, the greater your impact you're having on climate change as well as kind of it coincides together by just making smart business decisions and how you distribute it and get it out there. It's helping kind of that entire impact. I hope so. I think, you know, what, what we're doing is we're telling investors, if you invest in our company, some part of the money will be used for this. Mm-hmm. People can invest 500 bucks. So literally it's everybody, anybody who's interested in this type of thing, who uh, believes in what we're doing can come in. And so part of that is also to say, you know, where governments really haven't kind of stepped in here, people can. And the fact that this solution is somehow being kind of crowdsourced, if you will, um, and then provided to the cities is not insignificant because it is kind of a people's solution, you know, via us, a people's funded solution going into the cities, which is kind of what I think it should be. There's a model in here which works really well. You know, I think there's a great danger in having a type of Facebook or Google type application for cities. I think that there's uh, the, uh, you know, the... Um, it becomes very risky when when data is consolidated in the hands of an individual company outside of the locus of where that entity is. Um, and we've all seen, you know, in various ways how that can manifest from political elections to just general information shaping out, out there. And I think that um, being able to have a transparent information source, at least in the climate side, you could end up with a platform that creates a new standard of transparency, right? Um, the and information transparency. Uh, if we were lucky, we would roll this out across the country to cities everywhere with data standards, transparency standards, input and, and correlation standards that would make it very trustworthy that people could rely upon as a source of truth. I think that's one of our goals too, uh, given you know the kind of what's happened in the in the uh, in the tech scene out here. So, but yes, I'll just you know to, to summarize that. I mean, we are very project driven. You know, we end up doing the jobs that we do. And uh, with this big vision in mind, you know, we hope that we'll be able to take this to a, to a different level, you know, and make it something that everybody could use in some way or another. Yeah. I love that. And you're, you're kind of hitting on this, but any other thoughts on like the bigger vision or what your like longer term kind of objectives are with all of this? Well, yeah, I think the, I really think that to take on some of the problems around uh, climate resilience, uh, you really need a platform that can do this at scale and that can uh, be uh, developed in accordance with agreed upon standards and then rolled out and replicated location after location. Uh, that is our goal. Uh, we are, um, we think we will continue to do all the fancy digital twin projects that come to us from wherever they do, but we're going to consolidate and and focus on the delivery of this platform as a specific tool for solving some of those challenges uh, 
as much as we can. In an ideal world, in three years, we were in 100 cities. Um, everybody is walking around maybe in three or four years with a, with, a, with a mobile app that tells you what your carbon footprint is and recommend, makes recommendations to you how to change your behavior. So you, know, you can optimize your own footprint. And that might even get, if governments are smart, they'll connect that back to how much tax you pay you know, so that the, the, the better climate citizen you are, the less you pay. I mean, this is what many countries around the world do. So there's a hope that um, uh, you know, these types of technologies uh, will, will come to this, this point of, of mass adoption. Uh, and, you know, to do that would be obviously be an aspiration and also a dream for us. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's fascinating. Um, well, Michael, I appreciate you sharing here. For anybody else who's kind of on their path, um, you know, on their like their journey here, any other advice you have for other say, entrepreneurs or B2B professionals and just anything else you'd share here as we're kind of wrapping up? I think it's a, you're on an exciting journey. You know, uh, you're, you're by definition, you're, you're one, one, someone told me this once, which I'm going to share with you. You're a hero of some kind already because you're trying to bring about change. Um, no one tells you how to do this. There's no book, unfortunately. So read a, read a bunch of them and then distill whatever you believe in and give it your best. But I think that the best years of my life were the years I spent during the growth stage of my last company. And I'm starting to feel that same passion again, literally like 14 years later in this company. You will not have a more special professional experience than taking something you created from a seed into a big, beautiful plant someday, big, beautiful tree. That is a gorgeous journey. So if you're, if you're lucky enough to, to go on that, remember to step off the trail once in a while and just remember what you're doing and it's special, uh, that it is unique and that it is important. Uh, so, and good luck. You know, this is, uh, I'm all in favor of, uh, of helping fellow entrepreneurs, if there's anything I can do to personally uh, answer any of your questions or, or or give you some feedback, I'd be happy to. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, um, and for anyone that wants to go find out more about you or your company online, where's the best place to go? CitySenith.com. It's all there. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time, Michael. This was fascinating. An amazing guest. So I appreciate you coming on here. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. Great being on your show. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find links and show notes from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.